All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith Podcast. As always, my name is Josh Patterson. I am one of your hosts, and with me today, for the first time, and I feel like forever, is Marty Frederick. Marty, we've been out of it for a while. How are you doing, man? And I just, I feel really bad. I just have to apologize to you publicly, because I'm just a really bad podcast like, host <laughs> or co-host, because like, you know, there are times where like, I know well in advance that we're going to be recording an episode and we have a guest scheduled and all that stuff. And for some reason, like my life isn't always put together the way it needs to be to say like, hey, that date doesn't work for me or I can't do that. So I've sucked lately. So I apologize to you, Josh. And I apologize to uh, everyone listening. Uh, but there's been a lot of stuff going on. You know, this summer's been, it's so weird to be in like living in a world where like, like people want to call it post COVID, but it's not. And like, you know, so what, what is today? Like, you know, January or July 27th. And like, we're, we're still dealing with this and it's like, you know, and I don't think anyone in March foresaw that we would still be dealing with it at this point. But at the same time, I think that's part of the problem <laughs> that like everyone kind of, thought, Oh, it'll just be over by then. And um, so it's, I think it's put everyone's lives into a crazy uh, crazy place. How about you, Josh? How, how's life been handling in Maryland? Yeah, man, think, things are good. Although I think, like, just so the listeners know, because Marty's being super hard on himself, uh, I think you missed one recording. <laughs> we just, we've taken a, some, we took a break, right? Because we had all these these episodes kind of saved up in the queue, so to speak. So we could, you know, take a break and uh, things like that. So Marty's hating on himself. He doesn't need to do that. Um, besides too, they, like, we got so many complaints, like, oh my goodness, I'm so tired of Josh. Where's Marty? We're going to stop listening. People were riding in the streets. Where's Marty? Where's Marty? Uh, but well, we're good. <laughs> we're, we're just going to make one thing clear. There has never been a theology doesn't suck or, uh, anything else beyond that measure, that episode where it's been like a rethinking faith, theology doesn't suck, whatever. There's never been a podcast episode with just me and you're not there it's always been <laughs> the other way around because you are you don't suck whereas sometimes i kind of do um but the cool thing that's happened since uh we recorded last i think yeah it's crazy to say um my band actually got to play a show in chicago at navy pier 
awesome. Um, we actually got to like play outside for people. Uh, we had to wear a mask. It was blazingly hot, um, like out of control hot. And like I was setting up my drums and like sweating like like profusely, and I hadn't even played a single note <laughs> on the drums yet. Um, but it was really cool to be outside and like so. Yeah, things are in some ways things are going are getting better, but. Um, Maybe Josh, we'll have to do an episode sometime soon about like whether schools should reopen or not. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's a very controversial episode that I think people and you know, there's people that you're connected with, and there are people that I'm connected with that like that's very controversial for. So oh, for sure, and I have like zero expertise to speak into that aside from <laughs> the fact that I work with high school students and college students. So that gives you plenty of expertise <laughs> and you're allowed to have an opinion. So there you go. That's true. That's true. Well, I'll, I'll fill you in on one more thing. And then we do have a guest with us today. I don't want to leave them, them waiting and them like, Oh my goodness. Why did I agree scare, to come scare her away? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, but one thing exciting for me that has started back up that I've been super yeah. excited about is my hockey season. Uh, got shut down. And so now we're back. We're not competitively playing again, but we are practicing socially distanced, right? So it's helpful because we have this tool called a hockey stick, Marty. And if you hold your hockey stick out, um, then you're socially distanced. So nice. So is there hitting allowed? No, no checking, but we are back on the ice and I love it. So So it's not really hockey then. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) We're developing our skills. How's that? Good, good, good. Practice is important. Exactly. Sweet. And so actually today, like I alluded to, we do have a guest with us. We are not alone. And with us today is Dr. Sandra Richter. Sandra, how are you doing today? I'm doing fabulous. And little did I know that I was going to be interviewed by a professional percussionist and a hockey player. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, Josh, Josh is, Josh is probably, you know, I've actually watched some of his videos of him playing hockey that he like Uh from pre COVID times. uh, And he's like, he's like scored goals. Like he's Uh like, he's like really good. And the thing, here's the cool thing. If you ever met Josh in person, you'd look at him and you'd be like, Oh, like this is a, this is a smaller guy. He didn't get gifted with like the, the body bulk size uh, thing. And yet he still plays hockey and he's actually really good at it. So I think it's because he watches so much hockey. Mm-hmm. So that gives him the, the leg up on the competition. Either that or he's really a scrapper. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. I do. Yeah. I do have a slight reputation for being the chippy guy on the team, but it's because uh-huh. I'm short, you know, I have to yeah. stick up for yeah. myself. Yeah. You have to make up for it. But I, I really don't think there's such a thing as socially distanced hockey. I'm That's just, fair. Just, That's fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, that is so, a good point. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so on the topic of hockey, um, <laughs> Andrew, we have a we have a question that we ask every guest that comes on our show. Um, okay, I'm ready. A, that was a really great segue. Um, it brought us right to it. Uh, Sandra, who is your favorite hockey team? Oh, wait a second. I only know one hockey player. Played for the Bruins. Um, is it Bobby Orr? No. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Bobby Orr. That's my favorite player. There we go. All right. Yeah, so- and, and I want you to know that the first time I went to an ice hockey game and two large bodies were plastered up against the plexiglass six inches from my face. Yeah. And then the blood <laughs> smeared all over the plexiglass. I thought, you know, 
maybe I'll go to a baseball game. <laughs> is, this, is this ancient Greece or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Roman gladiators. <laughs> well, and so so the Bruins, then we, we're, we're going to call them your favorite team, the Bruins. Yes, absolutely. And Bobby so, Orr is um, a solid, solid hockey player, so Bobby yeah. Orr deserves all the credit. He's, he is the bomb, yeah. I lived in Boston for, for two and a half years when I was in seminary. <laughs> And so, uh, uh, where did you go to Gordon Conwell? What? So did I. Oh, yeah. very. See, mm -hmm. Josh, Josh has a good knack of bringing great guests on the show. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, but I, yeah, my... I, I learned very quickly that, uh, Boston is very passionate about their hockey team. Yeah. So, now we're passionate still about a lot of things. So. Yeah. We're still Pats fans and our house is still draped in black, um, over Brady actually daring or or being incurred i don't get it i mean what what is he doing in florida I, yeah. I i don't know what to do well he's already halfway to retirement so maybe he figured he'll retire in florida but he'll already be there when the season's mm. over and the buccaneers don't make the uh <laughs> they don't make the playoffs so then he'll just he'll just already be home he won't have to travel anywhere afterwards it's but. it's just wrong you know it's one of those things that the eschaton is going to fix so. oh there we go there we go yeah, segue yeah, mm -hmm. that is a well, so, segue. Uh, Sandra, t can you tell us uh, a little bit about you and what you do and like what your faith upbringing is? Just give us a brief history of who you are. Sure. Um, so first of all, you guys have to call me Sandy because um, I should have told you that before. Um, I'm usually only Sandra when I'm in trouble, which ah, yes. happens periodically. Or Dr. Richter, okay. can we call you Dr. So, Oh, Richter? you can do Dr. Richter too if you want. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so a uh, brief story. Um, I am the proud child of a career Navy guy. Um, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, as all Navy juniors should be. Um, traveled all over the country uh, because of my dad's status. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the Washington suburbs during my growing up time. Uh, I became a Christian in my late teens. Uh, there was a, the Jesus movement was on and it enveloped Washington and the Burbs in this radical Holy Spirit driven revival. I was actually coming out of the Catholic upbringing. All of my early Christian friends were coming out of Jewish backgrounds, liberal Protestant. We all just got saved in a coffee house across the street from my house. Um, I had no idea the organized church even existed. It was, it was pretty funny because here I am, very much a Catholic kid, raised in a Jewish neighborhood, and I meet Jesus in a coffee house across the street in the backyard of an Episcopal church. And we started going to these Jesus festivals. Um, they were very big in uh, the late 70s and 80s. And I honestly used to sit there and think, where are all these people coming from? there are only going to be 50 people in heaven. You know, there's my small group and then there's my friend's small group and who are all these people? So um, that's how I became a Christian. Then uh, I had no life plan. Jesus was coming back any moment now. So uh, as about 17, um, one of the side notes here is that my Catholic dad was not thrilled about me becoming a Christian. So I wound up on my own at 17. Um, and someone dropped the book, The Cross and the Switchblade in my hands, which is the story of Teen Challenge. I read the book, 
the Holy Spirit used it to kind of grab me. And I went to one of the leaders in my fellowship and I said, uh, whoever these people are and wherever they are, I have to find them and I have to help them. And she said, oh, you're experiencing a call to ministry. And I said, okay, what's that? And uh, she said, it means you have to go to Bible college. And I said, okay, what's that? And uh, so I applied to two Bible colleges. One lost my application. I wound up at the other one, trained for ministry, went into ministry. I was a girl in ministry in a very conservative denomination. So I was constantly the only woman in the room and constantly being encouraged to try something else. And one of those encouragements came from a senior pastor. He got me a little adjunct position at Zion Bible Institute in Rhode Island. Uh, they're still wearing uniforms. That's how conservative they were. Um, I taught intro to Old Testament for them. I was doing my master's at Gordon-Conwell at the time. And I said, okay, God, um, what's the plan? And I didn't even get through my syllabus before I knew that I knew that I knew that I had been designed to do this. And so that started the quest for the PhD. To my great surprise, I wound up at Harvard University. Um, I've taught at Asbury Theological. I taught at a little inner city seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, Wheaton College. And now I am the Gundry Chair at Westmont. So that is my story, pretty narrow. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I was actually, I was going to ask you um, what your connection to Wheaton College was, because I had seen that mm -hmm. come up a couple of times. And, uh, oh, goodness, uh, Walton, um, John, John Walton. Yeah, his mm -hmm. work is, is, is super, uh, super helpful. I find it super helpful. So I was going to ask you what your connection there was. That's awesome. Yeah, John, John and I shared a wall. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> he was my next door neighbor. And uh, let me just give a shout out that John Walton is one of the finest human beings I know. He and his wife are so generous and so kind. Um, so yeah, I taught at Wheaton for about four years. I had intended to stay there until I died. Um, my uh, kids were loving the town of Wheaton. It's a, a sweet little Mayberry-esque kind of place. Um, and then Westmont came calling and uh, they came calling uh, quite aggressively. <laughs> and what they were uh, recruiting me for was the uh, Bob Gundry, Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies. And it wasn't an interview that I could casually say no to. And by the time we were done, I was at Westmont, to my great surprise. I, I, I love the Wheaton area too. I, I, I didn't go to Wheaton, but um, I have lots of friends that did. And I have... Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of my Gordon Conwell professors uh, taught there for a bit as well, Steve King. I'm not sure if you were there at the same time as him, but uh, Steve he did. King. Is that Steve what you said? Steve King. Okay. No, I, I don't know that person at all, but Greg Beale, Scott Haifman. Um, oh, my goodness. A lot of the Gordon Conwell crew has come through Wheaton one way or another. Right. Yeah. 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 Actually, so it, it, it's a, it's a, a lot place. of the evangelical world has come through Wheaton one <laughs> way or true. another. Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Sweet. Well, Sandra, thanks for, uh, or not Sandra, Sandy or Dr. Richter. Uh, thank yeah. you again for, for filling us in and, and uh, giving us some background on who yeah. you are. But uh, today we wanted to talk to you about your most recent book uh, called Stewards mm -hmm. of Eden, what scripture says about the environment and why it matters. And yes. so just right out of the gate, uh, what 
caused you or, or why did you write this book? Mm. Well, that is, it's a big why. This is a, a labor of love for me. Uh, my goodness, where do I even start? Um, I have always had a passion for the creation. I have always been a person that when I was walking in the woods or standing by the side of the ocean or I saw a hawk um, floating above me in the air, I see the hand of the creator. I see the glory of God. And I know there are a lot of people just like me out there. Um, but when I became a Christian, I honestly thought that my love for the environment was a peripheral issue that what really mattered was getting out there and winning souls. And I needed to put my concern for the creation on the shelf. And I actually launched with a story like that in the first chapter, because um, somewhere along the way, Kristen Page and I, Wheaton College, uh, the one of the senior biology profs there, we got a special grant and managed to teach an environmentalism course at Wheaton. And it was called, um, uh, well, what do we call it? Uh, 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 the Environment for, for Christians or something. But the subtitle was uh, The Bible and Biology. And we launched the class with what would be a seemingly innocent icebreaker. Uh, every teacher out there has used this kind of icebreaker a thousand times. And it's, you know, who are you? What's your major? And why'd you take this course? And as we moved around this class of 25, 30 kids, every one of them. And Wheaton is a, a school that searches the world for type A personalities, um, calls them, brings them on campus, and then makes them more type A. So these are, are very passionate, driven young people. Every one of them said the same thing. I am a Christian, I love the environment, but I didn't know I was allowed to have both passions. I didn't know I was allowed to be a Christian and an environmentalist. So I'm so glad you took this course or you, you taught this course. So I share that story, Kristen shared that story. Um, it wasn't until 2005, which in my world doesn't seem very long ago, maybe to yours it, it does, um, that I was able to first bring this message into a pulpit and uh, 10 years of teaching on it, 10 years of lecturing on it, 10 years of formulating a biblical theology of environmental stewardship, <clears throat> I needed to put it into print. So that's what the book is. Oh. Well, that seems, it, it, everything you're saying there kind of prefaces the next place we want to go to, but it's, it's, so, it's so true, I think, that um, I mean, I think that that's been my experience to kind of say, well, I didn't realize that I was allowed to care about the environment because, uh, and I, I hate using this term, but it's the one that comes to mind. Um, it seems like too liberal of an idea for the conservative Christian that I was brought up to be. Um, and so, and for some reason, um, caring for the environment and the earth is just this point of contention. Um, and so maybe I've touched on a, on a brief idea within that, like on, in a, on a macro level, but wh why is that? Why are Christians, why is this so contentious? What's the issue there? Well, I actually addressed that in the introduction. <clears throat> and again, I've been speaking on this from pulpits for about 10 years, which 
the first time was a big transition. Like I had spoken in public, I'd helped organize recycling programs, or I'd been a volunteer at a refugee care, uh, sorry, um, wildlife uh, recovery center, this, that, or the other thing. But actually going to the pulpit with it, that was 2005. So as I've spoken about this and taught about this, you know, I've gotten a good opportunity to engage the church all over the country on why this is so contentious. And I've distilled it down into three reasons. <clears throat> the first one, I think, has a lot to do with American politics. That because environmentalism has traditionally been a democratic ideal, and because uh, the pro-life uh, movement has traditionally been a Republican ideal, that what has happened is that environmentalism has gotten guilty by association. Now, first of all, I do not at all concur with the idea that, you know, are you a Christian or are you a Democrat? Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard that anecdote more than once. Um, I think that's pretty much absurd. But uh, we have fallen into these camps in American politics. And because uh, most folks in the religious right or uh, a lot of folks who are passionate about their faith tend to land in the Republican Party because environmentalism lands in the Democratic Party. Again, guilty by association. It's been pigeonholed as a liberal idea. So that's reason number one. And that's the reason, by the way, that this little book of mine, and it is little, it's just barely over 100 pages. Uh, this is a biblical theology of environmentalism. You're not even going to find the words climate change in this book. And the reason you won't find them is because climate change, believe it or not, is not addressed in the Bible. Hello. So it's not in there. But humane animal husbandry, sustainable land use, environmental terrorism, those are in the Bible. And so they're in this book. Um, okay, so our topic has gotten politically pigeonholed. And as a result, a lot of devoted, sincere, integrous Christ followers are afraid of this topic and they just push it over there. That's one reason. I think the second reason is a classic that uh, involves a lot of issues of social justice that as Americans, as wealthy, protected, um, uh, privileged Americans, we don't see what's going on on the rest of the planet. We don't see the refugee camps in Somalia. We don't see the devastation of the rainforests in central Amazon. We don't see the rampant suicides in Punjab, India, or the collapse of the Ganges River system. Uh, there are so many complete environmental disasters out there that have got babies out on trash piles, searching through toxic waste for tomorrow's lunch. We don't see it. And since we don't see it, we struggle to believe it's happening. And therefore, we struggle to see this as a topic that the church needs to stand up on and say, there's a widow and an orphan standing in the middle of that toxic dump. And it's my job to step up on their behalf. And then the third issue that I speak to in the book as well is that over the years, we have come to read a number of passages in the New Covenant as passages that declare the destruction of the planet. 
which I think are a misreading, but we have passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 or 2 Peter 3.10 that speak of the creation burning up. And we think in terms, okay, the only thing that's not going to burn are the souls of men and women. And so we need to use the environment as aggressively as possible to do what really matters, which is saving souls. So I think those are the three reasons that the church really struggles. And one of the things I do in the book toward the end, especially is brothers and sisters in Christ, let me remind you of what the church is at its best. And at its best, we're the ones that stand in the gap. At its best, we're the moral compass of society. At its best, we're the ones who stand on the wall and shout, no, not on my watch. Mm-hmm. And what I'm calling for in this book is Christians who are willing to stand on the wall. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I could think back, just speaking to your first, to your first reason, the political side, uh, when I was uh, like six or seven, first grade, and the Exxon Valdez happened. And uh, I think, you know, as a child, no part of that seemed political. No part of that seemed religious it only seemed as this isn't this is a disaster that we have to that we have to figure out how to how to how to how to figure out how to make sure this never happens again how to clean it up um and then i've listened to other podcasts about the, the just the history of what happened with that and how the politics got in the way of that and so i can think as a you know i, I wasn't even a believer really per, per se much as a six or seven year old uh, but knowing the right thing to do was to care for the environment that had been so drastically and just had been so had been so torn apart by this disaster. And I just think that when we look at these things as political things, we like that just gets it just stops us in our tracks three feet from the finish line of how we can actually take care of something like that. And so like, yeah, I, I, I just I loved that part of the of the introduction. We kind of go over that and just kind of say like, this is not a you know, this is, this should not be like this. <laughs> like we should be able to move through mm-hmm. these, these issues. Um, and that was just one example I thought of as I was reading through that part of the book. It's like, yeah, like that's what I thought of when I was younger and the Exxon Valdez happened. I thought there, there's no way I would have seen that as a political issue. Well, we have to make sure that if we're Christian, we have to say, well, we should, we, we don't have to care about that. So that, that's in Alaska and I'm here. So who cares? Like that was ne- never a thing that I thought about. I don't think Josh was born when that happened. (laughs) Well, and when you saw the images of the oil spreading and the wildlife and the coastal villages and um, especially Alaska, uh, you know, how how could you stand there and say, well, was this a Democrat problem or a Republican problem? You know, obviously this is an American problem. And one of the things I do over and over again in the book is I remind us all that we are citizens of another kingdom. Hello. And uh, when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, no one is going to ask us what card we're carrying in our wallet. They're going to ask us whether or not we've submitted to the the laws and the politics of the kingdom. Interesting, too, uh, back in February, I was in London. I was giving the Lang lectures at the London School of Theology which is the leading evangelical institution in uh, the UK and maybe even in Europe. And uh, I was asked to lecture on the new book. So I gave a public lecture on can a Christian be an environmentalist? 
And all these Brits are sitting in front of me saying, what planet did she get off? How, <laughs> how can you even ask that question? Because their political environment is such that the people who are running for prime minister are battling it out to see who can be more environmental. So they don't have those political constraints, whereas we do. And then we've got, and I don't even know what to think of this, especially in this season, but it seems like we've got a media that is busy trying to divide us on political lines. And so with the Valdez, they couldn't hide it. But one of the case studies I do in the book is uh, mountaintop removal coal mining in uh, Appalachia. And in 2000, uh, there was a massy energy um, impoundment that failed, 2000, that dumped 300 million gallons of toxic sludge into the Ohio River and the Big Sandy River. I never heard about it. I never heard about it. I lived in Kentucky in 2000. I was teaching at Asbury Theological. It never hit my news stream. And I've actually asked a couple other folk who were lifers in Kentucky, they never heard about it either. And you know what? That impoundment burst that grows out of mountaintop removal coal mining has been classified as the greatest environmental disaster in the history of the United States. And we never heard about it because you can hide it in Appalachia. Why can you hide it in Appalachia? Because that's where the marginalized live. You couldn't hide the Exxon Valdez. That type of stuff just makes me angry. Yeah, you couldn't hide what happened in the Gulf, you know, 10 years ago, you know, that was just too hard to hide. Um, And, you know, but but like you like you're alluding to along the coasts of the Gulf of Mexico exist some of the, you know, most expensive properties in the in the whole world. And so you can't hide that because those people will make will make enough noise about it. Um, But, you know, and and that's and that's Obviously, we didn't necessarily come to talk about the, only the political side, but that was just one that really spoke to me as I was reading through it because the Exxon was important in our history, obviously, and I had not heard of the, of the mountaintop removal project, and I had not heard of that either. So, I mean, granted, I'm not, I'm 36 years old. I'm not, you know, I haven't been around forever, but um, yeah. You were around in 2000, though. Yeah, yeah I was. you got 10 more years on me, Marty, so. <laughs> <laughs> Josh was five in 2000, so. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> uh, sweet. Well, yeah, so I, I think it, it is important, though. I think the political bit is super important. I mean, if even just because the, the pure fact that politics has so divided the body of Christ, it's not even funny. Um, yeah. And just to show that it is, again, you know, rearing its ugly head in another important issue um, mm-hmm. is, is super important to point out. But one thing, so for me, I always like growing up had this weird tension it wasn't that i was ever like explicitly taught that christians couldn't care about the environment um and then i i started noticing those things as i got older um people would say stuff like that but i was confused as a kid because i was like well wait a minute isn't like the creation story about adam and eve taking care of the earth (laughs) so like what what does Genesis have to say here? And I think often the, the rub comes in where, to use your word, you talk about stewarding Eden. And um, a lot of people I was taught 
that men were and women were created well specifically men because i grew up in a southern baptist church were created to dominate the earth and i think that language causes a rift so yeah yeah and can i just say that um southeastern baptist theological uh invited me this past year to lecture on environmentalism so your oh, home denomination is um, definitely <laughs> stirring on this topic um, <clears throat> okay, so the book actually starts after introductions in Eden, and there are many reasons for that. The primary one is I'm doing biblical theology, and for your listeners, if they've done any of my stuff with Epic of Eden, uh, they know that I talk about God's original intent and the blueprint for creation, and God launches this amazing perfection that we live in with a blueprint, with a plan. He has a plan. And that plan is outlined in Eden. <clears throat> and so in Eden, we have the beautiful seven-day creation where the incredibly fragile and fierce ecosystem is formed in a perfect seven-day structure. And the birds go in the sky and the fish go in the sea and the animals in humanity go on the land. And then God is the seventh day enthroned over all of this beauty. It's perfect. It's a perfect, architectural unit where everything has its place. Uh, every living creature on this planet is designed to thrive and flourish and prosper. And all of that is happening under the sovereignty of the Almighty. That's the seventh day. And as we all know, the sixth day is the sovereignty of Adam, humanity. And by the way, that word means humanity. It doesn't just mean the male aspect of humanity. So the sixth day, we have Adam and Eve. <clears throat> They're given creation. Their job is to um, rule it. So the words uh, to rule, to um, uh, fill your domain, all of those words are in there. And that's not a mistake. But the mistake that happens in so much church theology is folks fail to realize that Adam and Eve are appointed as stewards of God's kingdom. So they are definitely to rule it, but they're to rule the earth the way that the sovereign rules the earth. So we are lessor, what, what are we? Lessees, not lessors. We're renters, we're not landlords. And we already have a set of marching orders. So our dominion should look just like the dominion of the creator. And anytime it doesn't look like the dominion of the creator, we've stepped out of line. We don't own this stuff. And that's the little proverb I recite throughout the book as well, that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It has been given to humanity to use in their need, but not to abuse in their greed. And so for some of your younger listeners, the whole idea of renting an apartment, right? <clears throat> And up front, you have to give that big chunk of change that we all call a security deposit. So what happens if you trash your apartment? Yeah? What happens if the landlord comes back and you've punched out the walls and you haven't thawed out the freezer in three years and um, you've been ironing on the carpet? Well, the news is you lose that security deposit. And honestly, that's the exact language of Leviticus when God exiles Israel. He says to them, you did not give my land its Sabbath, so I'm taking the Sabbath. I'm taking back that, that uh, security deposit. Yeah, that 
the the landlord um, language was so helpful for me personally because I'm still I mean I still have like a landlord even today like I said I'm young I'm 26 uh, we do live in like a single family home which is nice because we have three dogs no kids but three dogs so we're big animal lovers um, actually, and those those three dogs are going to give you a run for your money on that security deposit just like oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's right exactly True. right yeah so that that language is was was super helpful for me. Um, and especially with teaching uh, students, I'm a high school and young adult pastor, um, that yeah, I'm always looking for helpful, creative ways to speak to young people. And so that's a, a, great, a great way to do it. But I was telling Marty, with, with the Genesis thing, I felt like before, before you came on, I was telling Marty, I felt almost sad, like, wow, like Dr. Richter had to put in the time and effort to write this book. Like, I feel like that shouldn't have had to be a thing. <laughs> Because it seems so clear to me, but um, I don't know. I I appreciated the the landlord um, analogy is super helpful. Well, sure. and what a lot of folk don't realize um, is that this is this is the manner in which Adam and Eve live in the garden. This is the manner in which Israel lives in the land, and ultimately, this is the way Christians look toward the new heavens and the new earth. We never own any of this stuff. This is always his, and we are gifted to be able to experience it. And it's, it's built into Israel's experience. It's very clear in their laws of tithe and first fruits. They're, they're paying taxes is what they're doing. They're paying rent for the land. Uh, but often for a modern reader, this just isn't obvious. And that's a big part of what I do in the book. My expertise is in Near Eastern languages and civilizations. That's my PhD. So my expertise is in the sociological, anthropological, economic world that surrounds ancient Israel. And so these ideas of caring for the land, caring for the native species, and caring for the domestic species, how the land is supposed to be treated in warfare, this is all over the Mosaic Covenant. We just don't necessarily see it. So a big part of what the book is trying to do is just lift that stuff so that it is explicit, not implicit. Well, and then I just, as, as we read through the book, another aspect, you, you talk more outside of just the book of Genesis, as far as the Old Testament is concerned. Can you, can you share a little bit about like what, what the Old Testament has to say on creation care with like farming land, uh, animals, and then just the different aspects of that? Yeah, absolutely. So we start with the blueprint, which is, this is what God intended. But of course, we all know that humanity said, uh, no thanks, we have a better plan. And we created Adam's world. Man, we did good, didn't we? Um, okay, so God's original intent. And then, of course, there's the great rescue plan. And again, if your listeners are familiar with my work at all, everything between Genesis 3 and Revelation 19 is one huge rescue plan. And the goal of the rescue plan is how do we get Adam and Eve back in the garden? That's, that is what salvation is all about. It's not just individual fire insurance. It's how to get the blueprint put back together. Okay, so uh, we launch into a fallen world with all of the agonies that come with it. And one of God's, first God reaches out to Noah, then to Abraham, and then Moses. And we have the huge Mosaic Covenant which we all know as the Old Covenant. And it's really important to the environmental discussion because here we have a people of God 
who are landed. They have land. And since they're living in this uh, geographically designed region, they have to learn, as the people of God, how to interact with land, sea, sky, and critter in a godly fashion. Whereas, of course, in the New Covenant, we're not landed anymore. And so it's, it's a little fuzzier. So Israel gives us this perfect visual aid of what God's character regarding those topics looks like. And that's what we're after, right? Is God's character. So God's character is right off the bat, I'm the landlord, you're the renter. This stuff is mine. I'm giving it to you in your need. And I want you to have everything you need, including joy. But you can't abuse this stuff because I have a long-term vision. And this is Yahweh speaking. My long-term vision is that this land has got to be as fruitful as it is now for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And that is stated explicitly in Old Testament law. So the first big set of laws is sustainable agriculture. And so we see that the Sabbath ordinance, which we're all going to remember, is one of the Ten Commandments. Hello, it's one of the big ten. We can't get around it. The Sabbath ordinance doesn't just apply to humanity. It, apply, it applies to agriculture, to working animals, and to slaves. And so the Sabbath ordinance requires that each field get one year out of seven to lie fallow. And for any of your listeners who are actually agriculturalists, uh, we still know that uh, maintaining soil health is absolutely essential to agriculture. Now, we're trying to bypass that with uh, synthetic fertilizers and synthetic pesticides, uh, but every farmer out there knows that unless you allow the soil to rejuvenate itself, uh, your crops are going to fail. And not only are your crops going to fail because of soil uh, deterioration, but the bugs are smart, and they figure out real fast if the only thing you're growing in this field is strawberries, and you've been growing strawberries in this field for the last decade, every bug that loves strawberries is gonna come live in your field. Whereas if you let it go a full year fallow, all of the larvae that come from those bugs are gonna die off. And so when you come back the next year, the soil's gonna be healthier. Okay, there's huge amounts of science surrounding that, but I talk a lot about it in the book. Uh, soil sustainability, now animal sustainability. For anyone out there who's actually read Black Beauty, uh, the whole idea of giving an animal a day off a week uh, is huge. And Israel, and this kills me, uh, my last run of technical pieces, which your audience probably won't be interested in, but one's coming out in Catholic Biblical Quarterly in October, um, is all on the economics of ancient Israel. They had a real economy, you know, like a real economy. Like they had to buy things, sell things, they went into debt, they had to deal with debt. Um, they're living in a subsistence economy. They're barely making it. Baruch Rosen, an Israeli archaeologist, has demonstrated that the hungry season in a standard Israelite village, 60 days. If you're studying anthropology, you know what a hungry season is. That's the distance between the last harvest has run out and the first, next harvest hasn't come in yet. 60 days, the average family went hungry in Israel, which means you're going to eat less um, all year long to make up for it. Okay, in that kind of economy, Israel is commanded 
to let their animals rest one day out of seven. In that kind of economy, they're being commanded, do not muzzle the ox while he's threshing the grain. And I did a bunch of work with a past student, Ryan Strebeck. Hey, Ryan. Um, who is a third generation cattle farmer in West Texas, New Mexico. And we figured out with zooarchaeology and Ryan exactly how much grain a working bovine can consume without foundering in a day of threshing. And the news is that that family that knew they were gonna go hungry 60 days out of the year was losing as much as 25 pounds of grain every year to their threshing animal and yet they're commanded, let that animal enjoy the harvest. I know you're gonna be hungry at the end of the season, but don't you dare muzzle that animal. Let him enjoy it just along with you. So all of these laws, Israel is living with day in and day out, and they're real people, and they're really hungry, and they're really looking at a mortgage that they don't think they can pay. And yet they're being commanded, you go pay $4.50 for your cage-free eggs, and don't you dare come home with the cheap eggs. So I'm done preaching now. <laughs> no, that's so good. I love it. And that, that, that part about the, when you got into talking about the um, different laws and how they would let their animals eat and all that kind of, it was like blowing my mind. I was telling my wife. So my wife, uh, she works at what's called Barks, Baltimore Animal Rescue and Care Shelter. So she uh, rescues um, cats and dogs, mostly, or actually all animals. They have a ton of animals. And so she's real big um, into animal rights. She's a you know vegetarian, all these kind of stuff. And so mm -hmm. I was telling her all this cool stuff. And she was like, yes, that person should be on your podcast. Oh, <laughs> well, thank her for me. So, I'm absolutely. Grateful. I will. I will. I will pass on your regards to Noel. But one mm -hmm. thing that I know will come to mind for some people um, who are a little bit more studied, they'll be like, okay, well, Dr. Richter, that's nice that the Old Testament had some nice things to say, mm -hmm. but... Uh, and I'm being very tongue in cheek because I have a strong opinion here. But doesn't the New Testament say that the earth is just going to be destroyed and it's just going to burn? And the really the only important thing in the New Testament is that we go to heaven when we die, right? Uh, okay, so the first thing I would say is guess where heaven is. <laughs> yes. My, Amen. My, yeah. My students are always stunned by this, both undergraduates and graduates. So I love this section of my intro to Old Testament where I get to tell them that heaven is actually the new heavens and the new earth. That heaven, as we call it, is actually even restored. When I get to see all of the, um, the flourishing, uh, generosity of the creator restored. Um, all these extinct animals running around uh, the planet again. Okay, so um, the bottom line is that our new heavens and new earth that are discussed in uh, Revelation uh, 21 and 22 that are uh, envisioned by Ezekiel and um, prophesied by all the great prophets is actually this planet resurrected. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, come on, we're talking Romans here, Roman road, come on, we're there. <laughs> Paul, who you would never think of terming a tree hugger, right? Uh, he actually goes off in chapter 8 of Romans talking about the resurrection of this planet 
And I just want to, I want to read the passage for us again so that we can hear it out loud. I'm in Romans chapter eight, and he's talking about the sufferings of this present time. So picking it up in verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to, the, to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the resurrection of the body. So what is Paul doing? Paul, he is juxtaposing the resurrection of the planet with the resurrection of the sons and daughters of Eve. Now, there is nothing that Paul cares about more than getting people to heaven. And getting people to heaven, he is declaring, requires a resurrection. That you and I have already been born again when we said yes to Jesus, but our bodies are still dying. And it isn't until the final resurrection when our bodies are resurrected eternal. And where do those bodies go? Well, Paul is telling us that those bodies go into a resurrected heaven and earth. And the resurrecting of that heaven and earth is just as crucial to the plan of salvation as it is to get Bobby and Susie into heaven. And he's juxtaposing the two. The resurrection of the planet is just as important to him as the resurrection of my body and yours. So what does Paul know that we don't know? And what he knows is that this planet itself is part of the redemption plan. And God is not finished on this till this planet is resurrected. So it is not disposable. It is designed for redemption. And the not being disposable, now we crash into that in the passages you're referring to. Second Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. We hear that message repeated in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in Revelation 6. And so again, very good, devout Christ followers look at those passages and say, all of this stuff is going to burn up. So the first question we ask is, okay, what do we do with Peter and Paul? Do they disagree with each other? And we know with our hermeneutic, they can't disagree with each other. These two passages have to be reconcilable. And the way they're reconcilable, and I go into this in depth in the book, it's going to be a little hard to pick up here, but Peter and Thessalonians, they are rehearsing something called the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. We know it in the New Testament as the second coming. This is the day when the creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord of the universe, says, okay, time's up. I have yielded my immensely beautiful creation to humanity for as long as I can. And I've done it so that I can rescue every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve who's willing to say yes. But we've reached that juncture where there's not one more soul I can save and I am done. I'm done watching the wicked of this world abuse the innocent, abuse the weak, and I'm done allowing the forces of Adam's world to abuse my good gift of creation. 
And it's at that moment that the Son of Man stands up at the right hand of the Father and he says, now. And the hosts of heaven strap on their weapons and they march on this planet. That's what we're seeing when the skies open and the rider on the white horse appears. That is the day of Yahweh. It's a day of judgment and a day of mercy. It's a day of deliverance and a day of fear. And that great day is the day that Peter and, Thessal and Thessalonians is speaking about. And the imagery, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the imagery of that day is fire, always fire, and signs in the sky and on the earth. But the lexicon, the dictionary of those words, it's judgment. It's, it's not annihilation, it's judgment. Because if you're going to apply annihilation to the planet, the same language is applied to humanity. And obviously humanity is not gonna be annihilated. Humanity is going to be judged, it's gonna be separated, and then it's gonna be resurrected. Same thing with the planet. Sorry, long answer. No, it's okay. Yeah, and it's, I was gonna say, and it's so good too, I, I remember distinctly like, uh, people, so sometimes I'm sure you're familiar with this language, but uh, in some streams of Christianity, people talk heavily about this idea of deconstruction, reconstruction, mm. kind of stuff. Um, and so for me, what kicked off my deconstruction, oddly enough, was a book here that I know everyone, well, you're most definitely familiar with, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright, um, mm -hmm. which lays out, I mean, the exact kind of idea that you're talking about, the the importance of the the resurrection and mm -hmm. restoration of all things. And that like, I remember reading that my sophomore year in college um, mm. for a, a theology class I took at, so I went to Messiah College, now Messiah oh. University. Yeah, and uh, just like in my bedroom, I was like weeping. <laughs> like God, if this is not true, you have to tell me because this is way bigger, way more beautiful, way better than I was led to believe that I was a Christian so I can have fire insurance. <laughs> so I did it. No, know. I, Josh, I wind up the same place on a regular basis. I'll be, I'll be, especially that moment in the woods or that moment on the ocean. And I will find something primal rising up inside of me. And honestly, I think that's the image of God within all of us. We remember Eden on a, on a cellular level. We remember Eden and we know that this is wrong. And, and I will find myself with tears in my eyes saying, dear Jesus, please tell me this story is true. Please tell me that we're going to get this back. Please, please tell me that what we've done to this planet is not the end of the story. Yeah, I am so with you. And what we've done in the refugee camps and what we've done in the brothels of Thailand and what we've done in Chernobyl, tell me this isn't the end of the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to that, like, I know this is a little bit outside the, the realms of our conversation, but the biggest issue for me within, like, that causes some cognitive dissonance within my faith is the problem of evil, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, tons of people are familiar with. And this idea of the restoration and redemption of all creation, in a way, it doesn't solve the whole thing for me, but it gives me a hope oh. that the problem of evil can be solved later in the future, you know? So that it's just, it's such an important piece that I feel like so many people miss. Mm -hmm. And then it leads to, um, I mean, I think this is one of the integral spots where, where people, you know, um, drop out of the 
environmentalist kind of cause is because this mm -hmm. piece is missing. And I think it's so important. And I felt so jaded that I wasn't taught it growing up. <laughs> Well, you know, Josh, it's funny when I, I, I used to do my Epic of Eden course in weekend intensives and then they filmed it and I didn't have to be on a plane all the time, which was nice. But whenever I would teach that exact portion of the curriculum where people would realize that the bookends of our story are Eden in the New Jerusalem, that the initial plan and the restoration and the hope, um, I would always, always have some old woman or old man slowly make their way to the front of the auditorium or the sanctuary, often on a walker. Like you could see them coming and you could see in their face that they meant business. And when this person would get to the, all the time, it would happen. They'd get right up in my face and they would say, so many times I can quote it, I've been in church my entire life. I was here before I was born, every Sunday, every Wednesday. And then the tears would start. And no one has ever told me this. So it's not just you. We, we have robbed the church yeah, of their inheritance. We have. Well, and I okay, just think that's too, a different topic. <laughs> well, I just, as, as I think about this idea, you know, essentially what it boils down to, and, and forgive me for this, you know, just boiling this down to something that's not as significant, but saying, well, I guess I shouldn't care about the earth because it's just going to be destroyed someday anyway. And I think about that and I think no one would actually apply that logic to many other aspects of their life. Like if you said, um, well, I just got married. I mean, it's, I'm going to die someday anyway. So I need someone to care about my wife or my, or my husband, or, well, I just bought this brand new car. Well, it's going to break down and die someday. I guess I don't have to care about it. Like, I mean, no one would apply that logic to any aspect of their life ever. There's nothing mm -hmm. that anyone would say, well, that makes sense to this. So I guess to me, it just, it honestly, it just sounds like and comes off as a poor excuse for trying to engage in something that you think, as we talked about earlier, politically lies outside of what you're allowed to care about. Um, or, or Marty, try it this way. Um, those orphans, in the refugee camp um, in Somalia, they're never, they're, they're all Muslim. They're right. gonna burn. So I don't need to feed them. Right. Those widows that are living in Madagascar where the mortality rate of women in childbirth right now is one out of 10 due to environmental degradation. I don't need to care about them. They're not Christians, they're gonna burn. Would we ever in a bajillion years think that way about the widow and the orphan on this planet? Every one of your, your listeners should have their ire up right now. And be like, what? Hell no. What kind of person are you? Yeah. This, is, this is the call of the church. We stand in the gap. And yeah. where, where are we on this topic? Yeah. And I think, I think for some reason, and you've detailed a lot of them, but I think Christians just wind up getting lazy when it comes to these kinds of things um, because it's easy to it's easy to have an almost combative viewpoint on something like abortion um, mm. but it's not as easy to be passionate about this as you talked about earlier because it's something that in most in many ways exists outside either our framework of knowledge and understanding or something that we don't hear about 
or something that we'll never have to see and experience ourselves. And so you really have to engage and care about something mm -hmm. like this. You can't just, you can't just say, oh yeah, I care about the environment and then leave it mm -hmm. alone and never actually, and throw your litter out the window and like say, oh, well, who cares? Someone will pick it up. You know, some Boy Scout troop will, <laughs> will, will be cleaning <laughs> the side of the highway and they'll pick it up in a couple months. Like you have to really care and you have to think about it in every, every step of the way. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you um, in, in some of the practical issues for today, you kind of talked about a bunch of them. Uh, I want to talk about one specifically just to kind of hear a little bit from your perspective. We've touched on it just a little bit, um, but environmental terrorism in such mm -hmm. as things like the U.S. treatment of Vietnam. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that practical issue for today and how that and how that connects? Yeah, and that's... Uh Honestly, when I first discovered in my own studies in Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is my book, right? So I spent a lot of time in it. When I first realized that environmental terrorism was addressed in the Bible, I was a little bit stunned um, because, of course, Deuteronomy is a law code. And if it comes from the era that it claims to come from, which I would argue it's at least close, we're talking 1200 BC. 1200 BC. And it has laws about environmental terrorism, whereas we, we, we don't do so well with that. So uh, there is a funny little law in uh, Deuteronomy. It's in chapter 20, verse 19. And it says, when you're uh, order, uh, commanding the Israelites, when you're besieging a city for many days in order to wage war against it, to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an ax against them. Indeed, you may eat from the trees, but you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? Only a tree you know does not produce food, may you destroy and cut down, and that you may build your siege works with against the city uh, with which you're at war until it falls. Okay, so 1200 BC, these guys actually have boundaries on what they're allowed to destroy. And I do a lot of work in the chapter, walking people through trees in Israel, what they produce, how long it takes them to produce, the uh, 50, 100 year investment that uh, comes into an olive orchard or a vineyard. Talk through how the Assyrians and the Egyptians who are contemporary with the Israelites specialized in environmental terrorism. So when they besieged a city, they would intentionally wipe out all the orchards and vineyards in order to collapse the economy. And we have all sorts of archeological data about how these regions were transformed for, transformed, like, the entire ecology of the region was transformed by warfare, which we can also see in Iran and Iraq and many other places that uh, we've been at war in for centuries. Okay, so Deuteronomy actually restrains, even though the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, they're all doing it. And Israel's the underdog, and they're not allowed to do it. Huh. So then I take that into a modern case study of uh, Operation Ranch Hand in Vietnam. And you've got listeners who are or who know Vietnam vets. And of all the veterans in the history of our country, I think these men and women have been abused more by, by their own than anyone I know. And it breaks my heart. Uh, my dad is a Vietnam vet. So let me make it real clear that I'm a patriot. I'm a patriot and I'm an environmentalist. Hey, there you go. Um, but Operation Ranch Hand, as I detail in the book, uh, this is Agent Orange, and our beautiful, perfect 19-year-old young men who 
went to war out of loyalty and patriotism to their own country, came home um, soaked in carcinogens. They were told that Agent Orange was harmless. There are videos and, and photos of these guys spraying this stuff from fire hoses, and it's, it's all over them. They're shirtless, they're shoeless, they're, they're gloveless. And uh, the VA now has a whole list of cancers that have come out of Agent Orange, um, mental illness coming out of Agent Orange. Vietnam still has hot spots that create long-term genetic damage. Orphanages are filled in Vietnam with horrifically handicapped children. This is, this is a perfect example of how environmental terrorism destroyed our allies and ourselves in our attempt to defeat our enemy. It's no good for anyone. And that's what Deuteronomy is saying. You're going to need this land later. Don't, uh, don't wipe it out. You're going to need it. So choose to wage war in a fashion that is recoverable. Mm -hmm. It just seems like common sense to me. I mean, it's <laughs> Uh, it in in as you're reading that passage, you know, it, beyond the concept of caring for the environment, which is is a huge aspect of it, there just seems like a many other valuable assets to that. I mean, it's like yeah, care said, for yourself already. Right. Yeah, and let's yeah. let's let's say you besiege the city and you win, and then you're going to want more fruit from that tree to survive, but you cut it down, it's no longer there. I mean. It's, it's, it's not usable or even just as a defensive mm -hmm. position. I mean, I, I mean, there's so many reasons I could think of that, you know, you would, that would be common sense that it wouldn't need to be put in the law, almost as if we wouldn't need a uh, Dr. Sandy Richter to write this book because it mm -hmm. seems so common sense. All these issues seem to be something like, Hey, let's just, let's just be reasonable and think about this for a moment. But I think we get so caught up in our, our manifest destiny, our, uh, our desire to uh, to win, uh, whatever it might be, to be seen as the greatest country in, on the planet. And, mm. and I, I guess the other thing that I'll say, too, um, I don't know that this is necessarily just an American problem. Um, I'm sure that this no. exists well outside the framework of the United States of America, mm -hmm. um, as in the mm -hmm. 50 states. Um, <laughs> I'm sure mm -hmm. every country deals with this to its own uh, degree. Uh, but yeah, I... I as you're, as you're listing all that stuff out to me, it just, common sense was the common theme in my mind. Just, yeah, this just mm -hmm. makes sense. So why would we do this? So. Well, what happened in Israel and what happens in the States, and you're absolutely right, all over the planet. This is not just an American problem. This is not just a Western problem. It's not just a Christian problem. And I will talk about that in the book too. There are people out there that want to blame the environmental uh, crisis on uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic. And that's just not true. Um, right now, the greatest environmental disasters on this planet are the Ganges River system, China, unprecedented environmental impact, and the collapsed USSR. And all three of these regions are anything but Christian. Um, so yes, it is worldwide. The underlying issue is the tyranny of the urgent mm -hmm. and humanity's inability to look into the future. Whereas God doesn't have that problem. And he's sitting there saying, the tyranny of your urgent, the short-term demands of 
uh, you're hungry today and you think you're going to be hungry forever, you don't have enough change in your pocket, or just flat out greed, and you think that these resources are inexhaustible, that is not the character of our God. Mm-hmm. And that's my ultimate call to the church. Mm-hmm. This is not the character of your God. So where are you getting that character? It, it ain't coming from the kingdom. I can guarantee you that. Mm-hmm. And, and let me throw this into you before I forget it. The, the other problem with environmentalism, which I think, uh, I don't think, I know this happens on so many controversial topics. It's happening right now in the racism conversation as well. We, the church, well, we're lazy and we're short-sighted. I'm saying we, we, we. Issues like environmentalism, issues like racism, rather than embracing our own scriptures and being conformed to the image of Christ and being transformed into the character of our God and taking a stand early and often on what God has called us to be, we instead wait for culture to get around to it. And when culture gets around to it, all of a sudden we're chasing them with our, you know, little refrigerator magnet promises. And, oh, wait, we're on two, we're on two. And when we do that, we still don't embrace our inheritance. We still don't embrace the character of God. And we wind up with a, uh, an agenda, uh, a worldview, um, marching orders that still aren't Christian. And so what I'm doing in this book, again, it's a biblical theology of environmentalism. Yes, we've been ignoring it for God knows how long, but rather than embracing, um, I don't even want to name an organization, but rather than embracing some sort of political agenda, how about we embrace our scriptures? Hmm. And when we embrace our scriptures and become more like our God, how about we stand up in the midst of a world community and say, as a witness to the gospel, this is what our God looks like. Mm-hmm. This is his character. And the character of our God is that all of this beautiful stuff around us is a gift and it belongs to him. The character of our God is environmental terrorism is not in his plan. The abuse of the widow and the orphan that results from environmental t- um, degradation, he's on that. And he's calling his people to do differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a witness that would be to the current generation. Yeah. No, absolutely. Most definitely. And I think too, like you, there's so many other like practical issues. I mean, Marty and I have a bunch written down here, but just for sake of time, like that you Mm. touch on how this, how this uh, impacts. But I mean, even like you, we've, we've touched on a couple of times, the environmental degradation, degradation of the poor and the, the um, treatment of, of animals and these like big industrialized complex things, all this crazy Mm -hmm. stuff that happens is just, um, I don't know. We, the church, absolutely, to use your phrase, we need to stand in the gap and uh, be the ones who speak up about this. And so I'm super grateful uh, for your book, Stewards of Eden. Um, and listeners, be sure to, to pick up a copy. And also, too, a great thing that would go with it is uh, The Epic of Eden as well, which is uh, another book by Dr. Richter. Um, real quick, um, before we let you go, I have one more question that's kind of, it, it's involved, but it's also just maybe more of like a Josh is interested question. Um, St. Francis uh, is somebody that I, you know, I, I like St. Francis, but uh, he's been known as, you know, always pictured with like animals or in the environment. So I just wanted to know like St. Francis, what do you think about St. Francis? (laughs) 
So here's the bad news. My okay. expertise is in Hebrew Bible, right? Near Fair Eastern enough. languages and civilizations. <laughs> so you probably know more about Frank uh, St. Francis than I do. Um, I, I, I love the little statues and um, I do, I mean, he is an early environmental advocate. Um, and let me say that we have a lot of those in the history of the church and in the history of Judaism as well. Uh, we, and I, I do speak of these characters in the book, folks who stood up before their time, many as prophetic voices. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. Don't know a whole lot about St. Francis. What do yeah. you know? Tell us. No, well, I only know a little bit as well, but Francis just, I mean, the way you were talking at the beginning of our interview, talking about being out in nature and, you know, seeing a, a bird fly over, you know, being mm. in the woods or by the water. Um, Francis like had an intuition of find, being able to find God in nature and mm. talked, talked that way. Now he talked in ways that uh, to some of our, you know, more uh, conservative uh, Christian friends might be a little bit scary because he would say things like uh, brother moon and, and, you know, sister son, like things like that, mm -hmm. um, that can kind of weird people out. But he also, <laughs> he, he knew and understood the beauty of creation um, mm -hmm. and, you know, talked very positively about caring for the earth and, um, you know, loving and caring for animals. So actually my wife loves St. Francis as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, he's super yeah. cool. I, I would recommend checking him out if you ever get a chance. But Francis was uh, a cool dude. A cool, well, cool based off the dude. history that we have. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, call yeah. Saint yeah. Frank. Yeah, Saint for Frank. sure, <laughs> Frankie for Saint sure. Frank. There we go. Man, well, this this has been um, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work that you took to, oh. to put into this book and the you know all the lectures and everything that you've been giving. I know. Um, your work has been impactful for me. And also, like I was telling you uh, prior to we started, I have a good friend named Rachel, um, who she actually introduced me to your work. And she is a, the biggest fan ever. And so thank you, Rachel. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Rachel. Um, but we so we'll be sure to um, put a link to Stewards of Eden and also Epic of Eden. Um, in our show notes, but also mm -hmm. where where can people go to find you if they would like to, to follow you more? Um, well, I'm not a social media whiz, I'm sorry to say. Um, so uh, I am at Westmont College. I do have a, a faculty page there. Um, I have author pages at Amazon and Goodreads. Um, I will be filming my newest curriculum with Zondervan at the end of this month. Awesome. Um, and Zondervan is a better media whiz than I am. So uh, <laughs> that, that will help. Um, I've got a lot of material at Seedbed, which uh, is a, a Wesleyan, a kind of next generation Wesleyan um, media group, which is fun. Um, a lot of curriculums there. People are looking for more of me which is a scary thought. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm out and about and uh, often on the road speaking as well. Uh, I'm due in the woodlands in Texas. Uh, if Corona allows, I'm due in Lubbock in Texas. If Corona allows, I'll be in Pittsburgh next year. Yeah. I don't know. Nice. I'm not hard to find. 
Sweet. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, unfortunately, I know uh, SBL was canceled for this year. Yes. But yeah. I was introduced to SBL by a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Jace Broadhurst and uh, uh-huh. Dr. Rob Dalrymple. Um, and so if you're ever at SBL, it'd be awesome to run into you there as well. Well, believe it or not, I was actually due to be the plenary speaker for IBR, Institute oh, cool. of Biblical Research this year, which I was so excited about. I was going to do all my economic stuff. Oh, cool. Um, and so I'm very grateful to Lynn Coick and Lisa Ray Beal. We've, we've simply rescheduled for next year. So I'm going to get to do that all the same. Wonderful. So the Friday night gathering, if you haven't gone, you need to go. It's tons of fun. And uh, it happens right before, well, they're bleeding into each other. It used to happen right before uh, SBL kicked off, but it's a, a huge gathering of the um, uh, the evangelical community at SBL. So, Sweet. Awesome. Yeah. Well, sounds good. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, Marty, anything to, to wrap up here? I just uh, say thank you for your 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 wisdom, but also like you you present this material in such a way that it's not it's not too difficult for the standard non biblical scholar to understand it, and I think that Good. makes it great because uh, I think there are a lot of people out there, Christian or otherwise, um, that need to know and care about this idea and this and this thought process. Um, so I really appreciated the book as well, and I know that um, many 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 others will. You are so welcome. And that was the idea. A college student can read it, um, hopefully love it. They can go home and hand it to their parents who are like, oh, wow, she's not talking about Donald Trump at all in here. Um, And uh, hand it to the grandparents who are like, hey, wow, she's like translating kind of like the RSV. I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully yeah yeah thank you and you guys thank you so much for having me on and for spreading the good word and um yeah my my hope and prayer is that we the church can can take our place in the midst of this crisis Mm. yeah yeah absolutely well this is great and we so we like to sign off this way i always like to say go caps i say go blackhawks and we'll say and, go, uh, go pats so oh, you know all right there we go yeah there, right. there we we'll go nice. yeah <laughs> okay peace guys thank you okay uh...